as we watch the little ones leave the room, uh, reminds us of, this, of all of us of the time when we had kids and um, those who, of you who are yet to have kids, you know what you have to look forward to. Um, but parents, you know, as you think about raising children, what's one of the main things you consider? Uh, you're interested, at least um, in part, in the relationships they form, right? You're concerned about their friendships. You desire that they choose good friends. And so uh, this, is, this is a high priority for, I think, every parent. And the reason that is is because we all know there is significant influence that friendships have over our lives, right? We all know that. Uh, they define who we become. The uh, 5th century B.C. storyteller named Aesop from Aesop's Fables was known for saying this. A man is known by the company he keeps, right? Do you believe that? I think that's true. I think we can look into each other's lives and if we had a idea, a good idea of the friendships that we had, we could determine pretty much the quality or character of the person we're looking at, right? So I think Aesop's onto something here. Not just because he said it, but because it agrees with scripture. <laughs> a man is known by the company he keeps. Relationships that we have have a lot to say about who we are. This morning's text will take us uh, to a significantly deep level on this subject. I want you to turn with me, if you would, to James chapter 4. James chapter 4, and I'm going to read verses 1 through 4. <clears throat> James chapter 4, verses 1 through 4. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire, you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, and so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You, do not, you ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. This is a pretty bold section of the book of James. It's important that we understand it. But before we get into the text too much, I just want to remind you what the book of James is about. Uh, we've talked about this almost every Sunday. Uh, but the, James is a, the book of James is a collection of tests of faith. If you want to know whether or not your faith is genuine, real, authentic, saving, living, then the book of James is a good book to read, good book to study, good, to, good book to pray over, which is why we're doing that here on Sunday mornings. It's because we need to know, we need to know where we stand with Christ. I want to know, I hope you want to know the authenticity of your faith. Let's look, though, now at the test that we've already covered. If you look in chapter 1, turn with me back to chapter 1, uh, you will notice that the very first test, the first thing out of the chute, and by the way, the first three tests have uh, relate to our attitudes. Tests 1, 2, and 3 relate to our attitudes. And the first test that James brings up is the test of trials. What is your attitude about trials? Do you resent them or do you embrace them? The person who has authentic faith embraces the trials that God brings their way because they know something about trials. They know that trials bring about what? Christ-likeness, growth. 
And so they embrace these things, as difficult as they are. The second test that we see towards the end of that first chapter is our attitude or view of God. What is your attitude about God? Do you believe that he's a tyrant out to get you, out to trip you up, out to make you look like a fool? Is that what you, your view of God is? Or if your faith is authentic, if it's real, saving faith, your view of God would be that he's loving, kind, and caring about you and your spiritual growth. What is your attitude or view of God? The third test comes at the end of chapter 1, and it is our view of God's Word. What, how do you view God's Word? What's your attitude towards God's Word? Is it a take-it-or-leave-it attitude? Or, or are you desperate for God's Word? What is your attitude about God's Word? Do you take every opportunity to take it in? Or would you rather, you know, be doing something else at the moment? What's your attitude towards God's Word? And so after these first three tests that have to do or examine or expose our attitudes, James lists five tests that expose our relationships, about our relationships with people. Let's, let's look at these. Test four we covered is your view of God's people, beginning of chapter two. Your, your view of God's people. It's a test based on whether or not you treat people equally or impartially. Or if you don't have a saving faith, you, you may treat people uh, uh, impartially or, or play favorites based on what that person can do for you. If you can do something for me, you know, I'll, I'll pay attention to you. I'll like you. I'll include you. But if you've got nothing to offer, then I'll move on to somebody more important. What is your relationship with people? Do you treat them fairly? Test five. It's our view of works. Now you might think, well, what's, what's good works got to do with relationships? Well, James's idea of good works has to do with serving people. So if your faith is authentic, you'll be concerned about serving people, about caring for people, about meeting people's needs. It has to do with our relationships. Does your faith result in good works toward others? Test six, your use of the tongue, beginning of chapter three. Um, this is all one we wish we could forget, this test, right? But it is a penetrating examination of how you use your tongue. Is your tongue a source of encouragement for people or poison in people's lives? That was kind of a scary test. And then test seven, last week we talked, uh, test seven was uh, the test of wisdom. And that was at the end of chapter three, verses 13 through 18. Is the wisdom you possess from above, is it from God or is it from below? Uh, is it something that, that brings on uh, peace and gentleness and mercy? If so, then it's wisdom from above. If on the other hand, it, it brings on bitterness, jealousy, chaotic life, um, motivated by selfishness, then most likely the wisdom you're dealing with is wisdom from below. So you see how all these tests, the uh, tests four through seven, relate to people, right? For test one through three relate to your attitude. Tests four through seven relate to people. And test eight also relates to people, the one we're covering today, verses one through four in James chapter four. Now, so, so as we come to our text under consideration this morning, I want to point out to you what I think should be obvious, and that is those who possess authentic, living, saving faith are actually different than those who don't possess that. There's something different about those who know Christ versus those who do not. Would you agree with that? There's something basically different. 
And I don't think there's a New Testament author who would disagree with that. James here, the author of this book, who is the younger half-brother of Jesus, is writing as a leader of the Jerusalem church. So he was an elder in the Jerusalem church, writing this letter to the Jews that had been dispersed from Jerusalem because of first century persecution. He was writing a letter to them because he had heard that there was some relational difficulties in their midst. The ones I just read for you. What causes quarrels and fights, passions, desire, not having, murdering, coveting, quarreling, and so on and so forth. James had heard those things. And so he said, let's, let's wait a minute, let's consider what this says about the authenticity of your faith. And that's what we're looking at this morning. The primary identifying mark of a genuine Christian, someone who possesses authentic faith, is what? This is a test. What would you say? What is the primary identifying mark of a Christian, according to Jesus and every apostle? Love, right? Did you get it right? Love. You remember what Jesus said in John 13? Yes, let me, let me read it for you. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, by loving one another, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. Paul also agreed with this. He had quite a few things to say about it. In fact, every letter he wrote to a church included this issue. Listen to this from Philippians 1. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. Now he's going to tell us what it is. So that whether I come to you or see you when I am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. There's a unity, a love, a concern for one another. He said this in Romans 12, 9 and 10. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brother, brotherly affection. In fact, outdo one another with honor. So Paul told the Romans the same thing. He says the same thing, similar things rather, to the Galatians in, in 5.22, the Ephesians in, four, in chapter 4, verse 2, and in chapter 3, verse 14 of Colossians. All throughout the scriptures, we have this primary concern on how we treat each other, how we think about each other, how we prefer one another. And now here we get to this test, this eighth test in James, and he says, how are you doing? How do your lives look? Let's dive deep into this and see exactly whether or not your faith is authentic, whether it's real. So let's do that along with James. He points out, James does, that the condition of your human relationships reveals the condition of your relationship with God. The condition of your human relationships, your vertical or your horizontal relationships, reflects how your vertical relationship with God is, the health of it. All right? If you possess authentic faith, your horizontal relationships will be healthy. If you don't possess authentic faith, you'll struggle with those things. So how you treat people is directly related to which cosmic friendship you embrace. And what I mean by that is whether you embrace God or the world. If you embrace God, your relationships will reflect that. If you embrace the world, your relationships will reflect that. Does that make sense? That's the test. There's always that contrast in all of these tests. James wants you to look at it right in front of you and say, where am I at? Where do I fall on this spectrum? Okay, so today I want to show you what it means to be a friend of God or a friend of the world. 
And then I want to ask you to examine yourself to see which is your friend. All right, so this is the test. Let's, let's dive into it. Here, um, James says that wherever your allegiance lies will have profound impact on your daily relationships. So let's look at important friendships. If we're going to follow along in your outline, your first point is important friendships. To begin with, I'm going to unpack the meaning of friendship with God and friendship with the world, and then I'm going to circle back in the weeks to come and uh, uh, come back to the same passage and show you how both of these friendships impact our daily lives uh, down to the, the detail. The reason here, though, James is asking us to consider these two possible friendships, that is, with the world or with God, is because it says something about who we are. Does that make sense to you? That's what I've been trying to say. Let me read how Paul said it, 1 Corinthians 15, 33. Don't be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. You've heard that before. Proverbs 29, 27, 19 in the Living Bible says, A mirror reflects a man's face, but what he is really like is shown by the kind of friend he chooses. It's all saying the same thing, right? This is what we're talking about. I think all of us would agree with these concepts. You really can tell a lot about a person by the kind of friends they have. If, if this is so, if we can, in fact, identify uh, what is important to a person by the friends they choose, we should be able to look at the, a person's choice of friend between God and the world and tell whether or not their faith is authentic. We should be able to do that for ourselves, first of all, right? Look into the mirror, see where your affections lie, see where your allegiance is, and if it is towards the world or towards God, we will know. You will know. All right? That's why it's such a wonderful test of our faith. So let's look at this. Um, let's first start by defining the word friendship that James uses in verse 4. That word friendship comes from the Greek word philia. Uh, this word philia is also translated love in the New Testament. And most of us are familiar with that Greek word philia, right? There's a, a famous city in the United States that uses that root word. Anybody know what it is? Philadelphia. Yeah, you guys are so smart. Philadelphia. The city of what? Brotherly love. There you go. That's exactly the word that James is using here. Friendship. This, it's, it's a, it's an, uh, it means to love in an emotional way and have an affection for. You should be able to go to Philadelphia and feel welcome. Right? Unless you're wearing a cowboy's jersey then you won't feel welcome. Anybody familiar with the word agape? Yeah, most of us are. Agape is another New Testament word that's translated love. But that word is used when, it's, when the volition is involved, the, the will is involved. I will to love you. When the, when the authors use uh, philia or phileo, they're talking about the affection, the heart, the passion. You see the difference? That's, that's what we're dealing with here. We, James is saying uh, an affection for the world, a, a passion for the world, a friendship with the world. That's what he wants us to understand. Not, not just a casual acquaintance. In, in the way James uses this word, he's implying an, an intimate longing for, a pursuit of. Uh, in love's terminology, James might be saying, uh, are you infatuated with the world? It's not just, oh, I know them. No, it's, are, are you pursuing them? Are you pursuing the world? He isn't thinking of some occasional slip. 
into worldliness or a temporary distraction with material possessions. We all have that, right? We all struggle with that from time to time. What James is referring to is a settled affection, affection, a strong attraction, an ongoing intimacy with the world. Where is your friendship? Where is your affection? Think about what makes friends friends. Why are you friends with the people you're friends with? It's because you have something in common, right? You have common practices, common experiences, common goals, common likes and dislikes, and so you become friends. And this is exactly what James wants us to think about. Do you have more in common with God or more in common with the world? Where's your affection? What do you have in common with either? Let's look now at this idea of the alluring world that seems to be so dangerous. We have an idea of what the word friendship means. How about the word world? What does that mean? And what does it mean to have an affection for that? Well, the word world, when it's used in the New Testament, is used in many different ways. Some have said there's eight different definitions of the word world in the New Testament. James means a worldly system. All right? When he says world, friendship with the world, he's talking about a worldly system. A system that, that identifies worldliness, like selfishness, like, um, I don't know, think, things, hedonism, the, the, the pursuit of pleasure. In fact, the word hedonism uh, is actually coming from the root word that James, or we get translated passion in verse 1. It's the, the pursuit of pleasure. Um, so this, this worldly system that James is describing is promoting self, which is why greed, sensuality, and even agnosticism and atheism fit so well in this system because it's about self. It's about pursuing self, satisfying self, elevating self. It's, if self is driving this system, if, if, this is, if this is the driving concern of someone's life, then they would embrace and agree with and, and find commonality with anybody that opposes authority. Because what, is, what does authority do? It conflicts with self, doesn't it? That's what authority is meant to do. And if you are in my way, I don't get my way. And so we have a conflict. And I'm going to explain that in more detail in the weeks to come. But, but the worldly system in general recoils at the authority of God and rejects accountability to him because they don't want anything that they, they can't pursue self if they have to be accountable to God. Does that make sense? So this is the, the idea of world that, that James is thinking of. He isn't thinking of friendships with people in this world. A lot of people misunderstand that. Well, I can't be friends with you. You don't go to church. No, that's not what James is saying. What he's referring to is someone that embraces the worldly system. This, someone who, who does that, who embraces the world, cannot also embrace God. The two are mutually exclusive. They're incompatible. And not just in James's mind, but also in Paul's mind and Jesus's mind. I'll read you something from Paul. Now, we have received not, who's we? Christians, people with authentic faith. Those we have not received the spirit of this world, but the spirit who is from God. So there's a clear distinction in James's mind, in Paul's mind, between the world and God. Those who are friends with the world, those who are friends with God. James goes so far as to say here in verse 4, 
that if you befriend the worldly system, not only can you not befriend God, but did you see what he said? You're an enemy of God. This is concerning. This is serious language, isn't it? I've thought a little bit about this idea of being an enemy of God because I have a lot of friends who don't seem to me to be enemies of God, and yet the Bible says there's only two categories. If friends with God or enemies with God. And these folks I know aren't friends with God. They, they're not friends with God. But they don't seem like enemies of God either to me. So how do we think of them? What do we do with them? Well, the parable of the weeds in Matthew 13 is helpful. Jesus told this story about a farmer who sowed good grain seed in his field. And then that night, what happened? An enemy came and planted weed seed. Uh, and so when the crop grew, he walks out and he goes, somebody put bad seed in my field because I got more weeds than I do grain. And he said this, an enemy did this. And then the disciples were pondering that idea a little bit. And then later on they said, Jesus, explain to us the parable of the weeds. This is what Jesus said in Matthew 13, 38. The field is the world. So the seed goes into the world. And the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one. All right? So... The true and ultimate enemy in Jesus' mind is the devil, and the weeds are just his pawns. Jesus called them sons of the evil one. They do his dirty work, but the enemy is the devil. So weeds are enemies by association. Our friends, who don't seem like enemies of God, are enemies by association. And I'll explain that to you. By, by explaining this whole concept in military terms. I mean, we're talking about enemies, so military terms appropriate, right? Um, if we think of the, um, the army of the enemy, who is the commander-in-chief of that army? Satan, right? Are you tracking with me? The, 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 the enemy, uh, the army of the enemy is led by Satan. He's the commander-in-chief. So if Satan is the commander-in-chief of the enemy's army, who are the generals? Who are the colonels? Who are the majors? Who are the captains? Who are the sergeants? So follow me through this. I would say if the devil is the commander-in-chief, his generals are the highest-ranking demons. And by the way, they do have rank. I think the, the demons, some of the demons are his highest ranking generals. And his lower ranking demons would be considered maybe like colonels. The majors and captains, I think we get into the human arena there to, to, to contain this, this metaphor. And those are humans who have an evil agenda with an explicit objective to destroy any idea of God because it impedes their selfishness. These could be renowned atheists in position of authority and influence who would like to destroy the church, religion, and any of those who believe in God if they could. We know of people like that, right? They would say, I would say those people are majors and captains. And then you go down to the next level down, sergeants. Who are those folks? 
Well, sergeants are those who are also antagonistic towards God and Christians, but have no real platform. No one listens to them because they're just bullies at work who don't like Christians. You ever run into those people? Yeah, we've had encounters with them. Now down to the point. <laughs> There's a long way to get to this point, but who are the privates? Who are the infantrymen in the enemy's army? Our friends. It's those folks who really don't know what's going on in this spiritual battle. Like most privates don't know what's going on in the battle. They're just running out there and doing what they're told to do. This is, this is who, in my understanding, is who the enemy are. I believe these privates and infantrymen to be our unsafe friends and pawns of the upper level military personnel. They are enemies of God, virtue of the fact that they are in the wrong army. They are moved and directed by the unseen spiritual world of Satan and his demons and his, and his military personnel, mostly, I think, without their own knowledge or knowledge of the battle strategy. As unaware, now listen closely, as unaware as our friends are of their enemy status, they are enemies of God nonetheless. This is the sad part. Listen to Romans chapter 5, verse 10. For if while we were enemies, who's we again? Authentic people, authentic Christians, people with authentic faith. For if while we were still enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. So Paul is saying, we were all enemies at one point. Friends, this is an important theological fact. We're born enemies of God. We don't have a choice in the matter. And until Jesus does a miracle of grace, we remain in that army, unbeknownst to ourselves most of the time. So listen to Romans 5, 8, 5 through 8 rather. For those who live according to the flesh, that's those who are unsaved, they live by their flesh, not by the Spirit, they set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit, that is those who have authentic faith, set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. Now listen, for the mind that is set on the flesh, that is the, the person who is not converted, the person who doesn't know Jesus, is hostile to God. They're hostile to God whether or not they know it. And you say, how is that right? Well, let me, let me keep explaining this. As unassuming and neutral as our unsaved friends think and seem in relation to God, they are enemies for two reasons. I've already said one. They are in the wrong army. <laughs> Jesus said, if you're not for me, what? You're against me. Secondly, our friends, those who don't seem like enemies of God, have embraced the world's system, haven't they? They're in the wrong army, and they've embraced the world system, the only system they know. So they get their self-worth, that is our friends, they get their self-worth from the same sources as the rest of the world gets their, their self-worth. And where's that? Where did you get your self-worth before you knew Jesus? How high up the ladder you were, right? How much influence you had, how many nice toys you had, how much money you had in the bank. 
you know, how fit you were, whatever. It's something. And those, by the way, are not wrong, are they? Is it wrong to have money in the bank? No, it's good. Is it wrong to have a nice house? No, that's fine. So none of those things are wrong. But listen, they're not God. <laughs> they're not God. And so when you make those things God of your life, if you make those things you pursue with all your heart, which is what the world does, what's that make you? An idolater. And if you're an idolater, you're an enemy. By default. So those out there in the world that seem so innocent uh, are really taking their cues from a worldly system which includes their own self-directed affections, their, their abhorrence of authority including God's. They're guided by their fallen selfish nature that does what it wants independent of God. Our unsafe friends don't worry about what God's will is. They could care less what God's will is. If the Bible has two categories, friend of God or enemy of God, then here's an important question, especially if you're not certain. What makes a friend of God? <laughs> if, if there's only two categories, friend of God, enemy of God, what makes friend of God? How do you get on that, how do you get on that army, get on that team? I can spend the rest of my time talking about that. <clears throat> here's a really good piece of information. Like we, we, we like to say this around here. This is really a good deal. This is good news. Uh, Colossians chapter 1 verses 19 through 22. For in Him, that's in Christ Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things. So Jesus is up to something here. He's up to reconciling things. Whether on earth he's reconciling them or in heaven, making peace, how? By the blood of his cross, by his death. And you, <laughs> listen, enemy of God, and you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body by his flesh in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Amen. Isn't that awesome? He's ta he takes you, enemy, and without your permission, moves you into a different army. He reconciles you because he wants to. What glorious, and here's the thing, <laughs> that's, that's important because if it were up to you, you wouldn't do it. You're comfortable in that enemy army, aren't you? We all were. But God isn't. And so he moves us from this army to this army by his grace. He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. What wonderful news is that? What good news is it to hear that God specializes in switching people from one army to the other. What did Jesus say about this? <clears throat> John, we read it this morning. You heard it read from John 15, verses 14 and 15. You are my friends if you do what I command. That sounds military-like, doesn't it? You hear commands in the military often. And we are friends of God if we do what he has commanded. No longer do I call you servants... And we could add, 
or enemies. For the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. All right? Philia. I've called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. Now, I hope you're still with me here. What did Jesus make known to us that turns us from enemies to friends? The gospel. Right? That's what turns you from an enemy to a friend, is the gospel. You say, well, what might that be? I'm about ready to explain it to you. A friend of God is someone who obeys the gospel according to Jesus. That is, they believe what God has said about himself, that he is Jesus Christ incarnate in the flesh, that he's holy and perfect without any sin. These also, those who embrace the gospel, believe what God says about their own sinful condition. Do you believe what God says about your sinful condition? That you're desperately lost without hope unless God intervenes? Do you believe that or do you say, I'm fine? If you say, I'm fine, you haven't embraced the gospel. You can remain an enemy. If you understand that you are in desperate need of the grace of God through Christ, then guess what? You're hearing the gospel. You're hearing it. Maybe this morning for the first time. I don't know. Anyways, those who are friends of God obey this gospel. They believe what God has said about himself. They believe about what God has said about their spiritual condition. They believe what God has said about his son, Jesus Christ, as their only hope of forgiveness and grace. They believe what God has said about their need to respond to that good news, that gospel, and that is to confess their sins, to acknowledge their sinful condition, and embrace this gift offered to us in Christ Jesus, saying, thank you very much. Now my sins are forgiven. I no longer carry around a backpack full of guilt. I'm free. Believing that Jesus is Lord, that he, if, and that's, that's part of understanding who Jesus Christ is. He is Lord whether you believe it or not, but until you get to the point where you embrace that truth, you remain in the enemy's army. But when you embrace the truth that Jesus is Lord, it means that he has now the controls of your life. It means that you have now given him the keys to the car. He now directs how you think, how you live, what you do, what you don't. He is now Lord or boss. You see, God specializes in taking enemies and making them friends. He's really good at it. And so you can see why James uses this as a test of authentic faith, can't you? Our affections, where do they lie? Have you embraced the friend in God or have you embraced the friend of the world? If we are friends of God, how can we continue to sin in the same way as enemies of God do and yet maintain our friendship with God? You ever thought about that? You, you realize that just because you're a Christian doesn't mean you stop sinning. You continue to sin and struggle with the same thing the, world's, the world struggles with, right? Don't we? 
we, we continue to lust after things we shouldn't. We continue to pursue things we shouldn't. We prioritize things we shouldn't, say things we shouldn't, do things that we shouldn't, so forth and so on. We stumble in materialism. We get divorced. We have addictions. All this stuff, and yet we remain friends of God. How can that be? How does that work in God's eye? Well, it's this. Once we come to faith in Jesus Christ and receive his grace and mercy, when we do fall into those sins, we can't endure the separation that it brings. Have you noticed that? Yeah. You could endure that separation for a long time if you're an enemy. In fact, you'd prefer that separation. <laughs> a lot less uncomfortable. But when you know Jesus, when you have authentic faith, your sins bring a discomfort, right, in that separation that takes place between you and your Savior. And so what do you do? You run back to the cross and you plead his, his grace. You acknowledge your sin once again and embrace his gift of forgiveness in Christ. And then immediately you're restored back to a healthy positive, growing relationship with God. Yes, it's the, a way to illustrate this is like showing you the difference between a pig and a sheep. Um, they, they both may fall into mud, right? They probably have. But what happens when a sheep falls into mud? They jump out immediately and shake it off and try to get clean. How about a pig? When a pig falls into mud, falls into mud. What do they do? Do they hurry and get out? Or do they enjoy it a little bit and maybe wallow a little bit? They don't mind staying in the mud at all. The difference between a sheep and a pig is obvious. The difference between someone who loves God and loves the world is obvious. We both have the same struggles, both have the same problems, but someone who knows Christ, someone who loves Christ, someone whose faith is authentic, gets up, jumps out, and runs to the only place of cleansing. Right? And by the way, every Sunday here at Sun Valley Church, we show you where that is so that you can remember and do this at home every day of the week. You don't have to stay dirty from Sunday night to the next Sunday morning. You know, you, you can spend that whole week clean if you'd like. We're just showing you where you go for the cleansing. You go to that place of con confession, contrition, acknowledgement of sin, pleading the grace of Christ in his cross. So James is talking about our affections. Where do your affections lie? Instead of worrying about other people in your life, which is our tendency, instead of worrying about all those folks, how about looking in the mirror just for a second? Where are your affections? Where are my affections? when they come to this? Are they with God? Are they with the world? Where do I feel more comfortable? Where do I feel more at home? In the world or with God? Can't have it both ways. Jesus said you cannot serve two masters. Jesus says you'll, leave, you'll love one and despise the other. And the, the Apostle John says this forcefully. We read it during our, our call to confession. 1 John 2.15 Do not love the world or the things in this world. If anyone loves the world, love of the Father is not with him. Now, I'm going to conclude with this from Galatians 6.14. This is Paul speaking, and he speaks from a powerful perspective because of his history. You know Paul's history. He was a murderer. Paul was. He murdered people. Um, 
He was a bad guy. Listen to what Paul says about this. Galatians 6.14 But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Did you, did you hear that? Did you catch it? The world is crucified to the authentic believer. And what is crucifixion? It's a painful death, right? So, if killing off the world's passions in Paul's life was like a crucifixion, can you expect any different? It's a painful death to see that separation from the world. It's a laborious thing. But this is what God's up to. For those who have an authentic, genuine, living, saving faith, this is what God is up to. He's up to killing off the flesh, killing off our addiction to, our affection for the world. What John Owen said, he, he, the Holy Spirit's up to mortifying the flesh. When we, when we come to Christ, the Holy Spirit enters our heart and he begins to do his work in us and the world slowly and painfully begins to die the more and more we see Jesus and come to him and lean on him and desire him. Friends, who are you friends with? Who you're friends with says a lot about who you are. Are you friends with the world or are you friends with God? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we have, there is no more important question than this one that James is asking us. Where our affections lie, with the world or with God, with Christ, his son. I, I know, God, because in a size of a group as big as it is here this morning, there's certainly someone who has yet to put their faith and trust in Christ Jesus, who remains in the army of the enemy, maybe even unknowingly. Father, I pray that the Holy Spirit will take the truth of your word that's been spoken today and drive it to the deepest part of their, their life, their existence, so that they will see for themselves their need, their great need of the captain of our army to transform them from enemies to friends. God, do that work now if it be your will. Cause us to, to experience, all of us, friends, uh, all of these in this room this morning, to experience a genuine friendship with God. I pray that we would leave those elements of worldliness that may have a place in some dark secret corner of our lives may have some residue somewhere remaining. I pray the Holy Spirit that you would, that you would clean that out, that you would um, crucify it, that we would be clear in our thinking and our perspective and that we'd be looking and having affection towards Christ and, and God. Thank you, Father, for this section of Scripture. In Jesus' name, amen.